Let's have our, our young, young, young people leading in worship. I'm getting so old, I'm using the word young people. That's terrible. But they are, I guess, certainly younger than me. Um, it is nice to have you leading worship and truly leading us. It's, uh, it's a unique blessing of our church. We have a couple of different groups who just get the opportunity and give us the opportunity to be led by the generation that cometh. So thank you all for, uh, for practice and work and coming and leading out in worship today. And uh, I'm, I, I think the, the Lord has good plans for our church for the future. I, uh, I know that some of you heard the announcement about the rocks. How many, how many of you have been in the foyer and saw the table full of rocks? Good, good. So the, we know that the foyer is out of the normal path of travel now, and so we want to make sure you know. In the foyer, there are a bunch of rocks on the table. That's not the new decorating scheme. That is actually a different kind of a scheme. We would like you to take a rock. You can have one for each in your family. You can have one for your family. You can do it any way you'd like. Um, and we'd like you to write on the rock a prayer, a text, um, a, a hope for the future in our church, and, and leave that rock there on the table. What's going to happen on the 15th is before they pour the foundation of our building, the rocks that you sign and the rocks that you put your, your prayers on will be laid in the foundation of the building. And so it's, just, it's, a, it's a symbolic way of, of each of us putting our prayers into that building and reminding ourselves that we build on the rock. That any house not built on the rock will, f- in fact, fail. And so this is, the, this is our, our tangible sort of symbolic process. We'd like for you to take one. And I know some of you folks are like, well, I can't write on a rock in just 10 minutes. You can wait and do it again next week. You can take one home if you promise to bring it back. You can bring one from home as long as it's about this size. But it needs to be in the foundation by the, by the 15th. So next Sabbath, we need to have them all done. Okay? Good? Um, Rock Harbor Church is joining us in this. I think it's uniquely cool that Rock Harbor is putting, helping us put rocks in the foundation of our building. Just the simple word rock being repeated is interesting and fun to me. But they're, they're joining us in this. In fact, it was one of their church members who actually owns a company that, de- that delivers rocks, who brought 500 rocks that they actually counted. And we said, we need them about the palm size. So they actually found the right size and brought them here so that you could have these for, uh, for our church to, uh, to use. So please take advantage of that and just place a little piece of your prayers, a little piece of yourself in the foundation of our building. And then you will have rocked it. You know you've always wanted to rock it. We're in Matthew chapter 9 still. Um, We are going to be looking at uh, the next step, this next piece of the passage. So if you turn to Matthew chapter 9 and you pick it up at about verse 13, we're going to go down to about about verse 18. You can just check out that whole section there. But um, as we open up this section, remember we've just finished... The, the confrontation of Jesus by the Pharisees and the scribes because he eats with tax collectors and sinners. Remember, that's what we did last week. Those of you here last week, I'm sure you remember all about that. So we were, we were talking about Jesus' statement to them, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. And then the very next thing that happens is that up walks a group of John the Baptist's disciples. 
The next thing that Mark, that Matthew records is that the disciples of John the Baptist, Jesus' friend and cousin, confronting him on what he's doing. So as we, uh, as we find ourselves there, I want to talk about the bridegroom. The bridegroom. Jesus declares himself the bridegroom. Now remember where we are. We started on Sabbath when Jesus went up the hill sat down and began to preach this very demonstrative thing. Like Moses goes up the hill, like a king, he sits down. He begins to speak and he begins to tell the new rules of the kingdom. He begins to to flip the thinking of all the people, begins to turn them upside down and says, as soon as you understand your need for God, the kingdom is yours. And if you begin to follow him, these transformative things are going to be part of your life. And so you get to see Jesus lay out the foundations of our beliefs. And that is, those, in fact, are the foundations of Christianity still to now. But it's completely upside down as far as everybody understood it. Jesus then, as Matthew records, it starts to behave like God. Healing the leper, touching him. Healing the centurion servant, calming the sea, healing everybody in Capernaum, healing the demon-possessed men. All of that takes place as, jo- as Matthew is demonstrating and demonstrating and demonstrating and demonstrating who Jesus is. And then when he gets Jesus on the pinnacle of God-like status, he says, this same Jesus eats with tax collectors and sinners. And again, it's all upside down. This looks like the Messiah. This looks like the Messiah. This looks like the Messiah. This is, what? Nobody gets what's going on here. How is this guy going to eat with tax collectors and sinners? And so the man who declared him first to be the Messiah, John, standing in the water, points at Jesus and says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world has been arrested. His disciples are showing up at Jesus' doorstep saying, We don't understand you. We don't understand. You don't fit our mold for the Messiah. You don't fit our understanding of what's going, what's supposed to happen. That's where we find ourselves in Matthew chapter 9. Jesus stating that he is the bridegroom is a messianic statement from the Old Testament. Israel is the bride and God is the groom. Let's pray. Father, I know that we just prayed a minute ago, but I want to bring before you our our church and these moments we spend together. I ask that as we as we spend some time looking into your word that you would open it to us. That it would become clear that you are guiding. That it would become clear to our hearts that you have leadership and application for our lives today. We ask for your your cleansing power and your leadership for the preacher. In Jesus' name, amen. And so as these these folks come, I want to just remind you, questions from your friend about your spiritual life are some of the hardest ones to deal with, right? When one of your friends shows up and questions what's going on with you spiritually, it's one of the hardest things for a believer to deal with. A a person you don't know questioning you, no big deal. But one of your friends comes and they confront, they check in on your spiritual life and say, hey, uh, why why isn't this part of your spiritual life? It it draws you back like not having, like no one else can because they're insiders. They know who you are. They know what you're like. 
And those people, when they step into your presence and start bringing something up, it sort of sets you back a little bit. You start taking that a little more seriously. That's what's happening here. Remember that these guys actually have friends among the disciples of Jesus. The first couple of disciples of Jesus were, in fact, followers of John. Remember, they see John point out Jesus and they follow Jesus. They actually begin this process after leaving John's side. And so John the Baptist's disciples are actually among the disciples of Jesus. There's some early plants right in there in the midst. So now we have friends coming to friends. Now imagine that if you're, you're, you're meeting John the Baptist's disciples, you're standing there, you're proud of Jesus, you've been with Jesus, you've watched what's happening, you've been through the, the calming of the sea, you've seen the demoniac healed, you've seen all this stuff and it's really cool and you're all amped up about it and here come some of your friends and they walk up to you and if you were the other disciples, you'd go to the people you knew to talk to them, right? I imagine that they come to James and John, they come up to them, they say, hey, uh, hey guys, what's up? We're kind of watching what goes on here. We, we fast twice a week. We fast every Monday and we fast every Thursday. The Pharisees fast every Monday and they fast every Thursday. What's up with you guys? Here you are feasting with tax collectors and sinners and you don't seem to even practice fasting. It was considered one of the three most important things you could do in Judaism to fast. This is a big deal that you're not fasting. It's not an ancillary, oh, some people do this sort of thing like it is today. It's a serious central pillar of faith to be a person who fasts. We talked about this a few weeks ago. Oh, maybe it's even a few months ago when we were talking about the call for fasting. We all, well, I don't know, we, a lot of us tried it. Remember, you try to fast from, we, 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 talk, we talked about how the Jewish people fasted in the day and how they would fast from dinner time around the clock to the next dinner time. And uh, I don't know about you, but I found that a much easier way to practice fasting, skipping breakfast and lunch and having my dinner the next night. It, it felt more comfortable to me. But... We, we tried this out, and it, for the Jewish people, it was core. It was central. It would be like telling the Seventh-day Adventists, we keep the Sabbath, but you don't. What's up with you guys? So it's a very core idea among these people. And so here are Jesus' disciples, once again confronted. Confronted by the Pharisees a little while ago. Well, by now, the Pharisees are mad at them anyway. And the Pharisees and scribes are kind of always on the edge picking at what's going on. But to have their friends, the disciples of John, come, show up. You know, um, in, in our churches, we, we sometimes practice this, right? Um, we, we will have folks come to a church and they'll, they'll comment to, the, to their friends at the church. Uh, why are your church, why is your, what's going on? One of, our, one of our church members told me a story about some of his friends who told him he, he actually called them during the church service. And said, you need to get out of there right now. Do you know they have drums in that church? And I'm like, how do he not know that they have drums in that church? And, and it was just this weird kind of, you got to stop. The, uh, the, the, the guy who told me the story said, I told him, look, the pastor's preaching right now. Come here right now. And he said, he took a picture of the slide and sent it to him. And says, is this really, you think this is crazy what's going on in our church? It's a funny thing we do. But John the Baptist's disciples are stressed. They're hurting. Their master is in prison. They're without a leader. 
They're kind of leaning back on the things they know and they understand. The Pharisees have set the standard of behavior. And now they're looking at it and saying, hey, we fast. The Pharisees fast. And you guys eat with tax collectors and sinners. Doesn't add up to us. Doesn't make sense to us. Hmm. It's an interesting predicament. The disciples of John came to him saying, why do, you, why do we and the Pharisees fast? But your disciples, note the phrase, do not fast. So apparently they don't fast at all. Apparently this, this is not even about the practice. They don't do this at all. We know that Jesus at times did. But it's apparently not a practice of his disciples. Now you've got to remember who these disciples are. Jesus' disciples are kind of a ragtag band anyway. This is not your normal kind of group of disciples. These are not the guys you went down to the local seminary and hired for, for discipleship. This is some fishermen. This is a guy, this is the, some fishermen being, being led by a carpenter. There's a tax collector. There's a zealot. There's, a, there's, there's a, just people who are kind of, I don't know, they're just not what you, they're not disciple material. You know what I mean? You know, you, you know, you probably looked around the church and thought about that. There's some people in here who are not disciple material. That person might be sitting next to you. Don't tell them. Somebody's probably looking at you saying, that guy's not disciple material. It's all right. You don't get to decide. Jesus went through the entire country and picked up these 12 guys. He actually picked up 11. They had one volunteer. Probably the most qualified guy, Judas Iscariot. Qualified to be a disciple. We know how that turned out. So as everybody's looking at this, from John's disciples to everyone else, it just this band of guys don't make any sense. And the fact that they don't practice a normal ordinance of the church just, just makes it worse. You guys don't even fast. And it's you got to compare it within the text. They've just had a meal with tax collectors and sinners. Horrible thing. Then, the other side of this thing is, but and you don't even fast. Do you guys realize that if at least you would fast twice a week like everybody else, it would at least raise the esteem of the people around you a little in what you're doing? Come on. Give it a try. At least try to make yourself fit in. So Jesus then begins to talk to them. Can the friends of the bridegroom mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? Does anyone have a King James or a New King James with them today? In the King James it says, the children of the bridegroom. This is a little bit of an insight. This is one of those times when the King James nails it. You can see why they changed it, because the children of the bridegroom would seem a little odd, wouldn't it? Stop and think. Can the children of the bridegroom fast? Do you see how that would be a problem out of marriage? So in the, mo- in the modern translation, they changed it because it would be confusing to the person reading it. The Jewish context is very interesting. For the week, so you don't have a honeymoon in, in, in ancient Israel. Okay, in, in first century Israel, you're not going on a honeymoon. So you can wipe that off the slate. Instead, what you do is you host a week-long party for all your friends. Probably costs just as much as a honeymoon. So there's a, there's a wedding feast and a party that starts that one day. But then for the next week, for the rest of that week, your closest friends are hanging out with you and you're feeding them and you're hang, you're visiting, you're just having a great time for an entire week. 
It's your closest friends. The bride and the groom are called even king and queen. They're, they're treated like king and queen and even called king and queen for the week. Once the week's over, they go back to work like everybody else. But during that week, their closest friends join them in the kind of celebration of abundance that only kings and queens actually could do. And they are called the children of the bridegroom. So in the first century, when Jesus said to the children of the bridegroom, do the children of the bridegroom fast when the bridegroom was with them? It was, they would get that. They would go, oh, no way. That's a week of feasting and joy and their celebration. It's an awesome thing that goes on during that during the week. The children of the bridegroom are having a great time. It's not fasting. It's not mourning. It's this great moment, this great experience. And yet, <clears throat> Jesus says, as long as the bridegroom is with them, they're not going to fast. But he goes on to say, the day will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them and they will fast. So now go to the same scene. You spend a week together. You're having a great time. You're eating. You're having fun. And then at the end of the week, what happens? At the end of the week, everything goes back to the normal. At the end of the week, the king and queen are just John and Mary. Right? At the end of the week, all of their children are just carpenters and shoemakers and ditch diggers. They're just like everybody else. Everybody goes back to their normal way of life. Jesus is displaying that concept. Once the bridegroom is gone, they'll go back to the ways of, the, of normal life. But he's also putting forward a, a little bit. The first time we glimpse Jesus telling us that he's not going to be with them forever. Do you catch it? But the day will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them. This is the first glimpse we get of Jesus' understanding of the coming cross. It's right at the beginning of his ministry. He's just laying down how the whole thing works. And at this very point, Jesus begins to lay out the first sort of concept that this is not going on forever. Jesus embraces the reality of the cross from the beginning. And Jesus is beginning to state, hey, it's not always going to be like this. When it changes, they will fast. When it changes, the norms of of practice will come back and they'll have a reason for it because the bridegroom will be taken away. So you get the setup so far. Makes sense to you? Now, I, I love this whole bridegroom concept because our church is born on this phrase, the bridegroom cometh. It's a it's it's a, a King James verse, a King James uh, phrase taken out of the story of the of the ten virgins, and five of them have their oil plenty. The other five are looking to borrow oil, going to Seven Eleven in the middle of the night trying to get some. But the, the bridegroom cometh in the middle of the night. Half of them miss the boat. Half of them get in for the feast, for the ceremony, for the celebration. And the, and our own church was born on this concept of the bridegroom coming, the bridegroom coming. And we look for the bridegroom in the end. This is still the prophetic description of what it means when Jesus comes at the end of time. The bridegroom come and t- comes and takes home his bride. When the, when the new Jerusalem is descending from heaven, how is it described? Does anybody remember the passages in Revelation that describe how the new Jerusalem looks when it comes down to heaven? It's adorned as a bride prepared for her husband. This whole concept is right in the midst of what it means to be a follower of Christ. You, the church, are the bride of Christ. You see that again in Revelation. It's over and over again. It's the picture. The bridegroom, our Father in heaven. The bridegroom, Jesus. The bride, the church. 
So Jesus doesn't just stop there. He carries this forward. And he gets kind of personal. No one puts a piece, I like this word, of unshrunk cloth. I'm pretty sure unshrunk is not used a lot. We're not using unshrunk in our regular vocabulary. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. Now, let me ask you a question. Does anyone still sew patches? Raise your hand if you still sew patches. Nobody. Does anyone still sew? Thank you, Joe. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve. 13. Really? Lamos. <laughs> Do you all just throw away your clothes when they get a hole in it? Yes. Buttons? Yes. What has the world come to? <laughs> Disposable everything. Okay, well, so, so those of you who are like 45 and above, did your mom sew new knees in your pants? Raise your hand if your mom sewed new knees. Okay, now we're getting somewhere. So at least you know the concept. We understand the idea. The idea here is you get a hole in your clothes and you fix it. Revolutionary concept, right? For modern mankind. You actually patch the hole. You don't just let the hole sit there. You don't actually put holes in your pants so that people can see your legs. And pay extra for it. I can cut up my jeans and you can have them for 50 bucks. I will do it for, I have a whole bunch of old ones. Come by, I'll be happy to make holes in them for you. Sorry, cultural context. Jesus is saying, look, you have an old garment. You've worn it for a while. You get a hole in the, in the, the sleeve. When you come to repair it, you don't use brand new cloth on the old garment. Because if you do, once that cloth is washed and it shrinks, it's going to tear the garment. It's going to make the hole worse. You get the picture? Boy, it's like I'm talking to people from Mars. This is a, this is a real thing. People actually still do this in this world. Not apparently here, but in other places. And the concept is that it will it, the, the, the hole in the garment will actually get worse. Now, think about it. The garment's older, and so it's a little worn already. That's why it's got a hole in it. And if you put a brand new piece of cloth on it and that shrinks, it's going to tear it apart. The fabrics were not woven by machines. They're not as tight as what we wear. And so the, this concept was really normal. This was what would happen. So people would understand, oh, yeah, okay, I get that. You don't sew a brand new piece of cloth on an old garment. You're going to make the hole worse. Jesus goes, yeah, get it. Got it? Go good. So he just said, they said, wait, 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 what about this fasting thing? And Jesus goes on what looks like a completely different direction. He said, well, what about the garment? What is that? I don't understand. Let me apply it to your life. Have you ever tried to patch Jesus into your life? A little patch of Jesus over here somewhere? You can't just patchwork Jesus into your life. 
You can't just throw them here and there. You, you can't keep everything the same as the old garments you were wearing. You can't just have the old garment and patch Jesus in. Because Jesus is going to tear up the old garment. And thank goodness he does. Jesus, if you try to patch him into your old clothes, you're going to find yourself naked. Because he's going to tear up the old garment. He's offering a brand new garment. He's offering a brand new covering. You can't just patchwork Jesus into your life. You have to actually take on the changes that he's bringing on. That's scary, isn't it? But it's awesome too. Because the changes bless your life. The changes bless your life. And then Jesus amps it up just a little. Turns up the volume, turns up the heat just a little. He takes his next illustration. Nor do they put new wine in old wineskins. So, get the picture. They, they had what we would call wine vats. We see one at the wedding feast at Cana, right? They have, they have big pots that they put this stuff in. But they're not always what a person would do. So if a person was going to have their sort of personal serving sort of thing, something they were going to carry around with them, he said they, they recognize there's a difference in this stuff. Now, they can't tell you the bacteria that causes fermentation and all that stuff. They don't have that on their, on their work. They don't have that in their, in, their, in their hands. But they know what happens. They know that this stuff starts to bubble and cool and weird and odd things happen to it. And they know that if you put the bubbling stuff in an old wineskin, old wineskins, uh, um, know what a wineskin is? The patching thing I was a little surprised about. I don't really expect that most of you have had a wineskin in your hand. A wineskin is taken from one of the legs of an animal. So you take that hip. So you got that wide spot on the hip going to a narrower spot at the knee of an animal. Think of that picture. Sort of that triangular piece. Okay? And they would take that and they would sew it closed. Right? So now you're getting it? Okay? That piece of leather with its narrow neck on the top could be used to store liquids. So an old one, like old leather, gets tough and hard. And, and even if it's really old, it'll actually start to get a little cracking. You're handling it. You're getting you're, you're, the, the perspiration from your hands on it. It's dragging through with you all over life. And it starts to get older. And so you don't put new wine in that thing. If you do, as soon as it starts to bubble, that thing's going to blow open. You're going you're gonna to lose it and the, the, the things inside of it. Jesus says you don't put new wine in an old wineskin you're going to blow up the wineskin. He says, you, you can't put something that's still effervescing and growing and transforming in something that can't handle the transformation. You can't put this in there and expect things to be the same. You can't put Jesus in your life and expect things to go on as they always have. You can't put new wine in an old wineskin. You know, the church is terrible about The last words of a dying church, you know what they are? We've never done it that way before. We've never done it that way before. Those are the last words of a dying church. Churches are terrible about hanging on to things beyond their usefulness. There is very little in this world that has an eternal life. But a church program can go on forever. Nobody comes anymore except for the person leading the program. 
but faithfully they show up every week in the hope that somebody will come. At some point, occasionally, we need to kill a program. Don't sound scary? Does it sound realistic? One of the problems that the church has with old things that we're accustomed to is we get so caught up in loving those things that we used to do, that used to be successful. We get so caught up in loving those things, we think those things are the gospel. We think those things are the direct word from Jesus. And no, they were the practices of the people before us who found something that worked. Now, as a caveat, you don't kill old things just because they're old things. You kill old things when they no longer function. And I'm really glad we don't kill old things just because they're old things because I've become an old thing. When the church holds on to things of the past so white-knuckle tightly that we can't allow ourselves to keep growing and moving and discovering, we begin to worship the past and not the Lord. Because God is constantly moving and changing and transforming. You know it in your own life, right? Those of you who have been spiritual Christians following God for a while, you know that He's constantly moving you. He's constantly adjusting the relationship. He's constantly challenging you to the next thing and challenging you to the next thing. And it happens through your entire lives. You'll be 95 years old and barely able to still get up and go to church. But in that, in those last years, 100, 105, 120 if you'd like, God is still going to be moving you, going to be transforming you. He's going to be keeping you in the walk, keeping you moving along in your growth. New wine requires new wineskins. Jesus has just poured out buckets of new wine. That's what the whole of the Sermon on the Mount was. That's what the demonstrations of the last several days were. I think this is why Matthew takes the time. Mark, Matthew, and Luke all highlight this moment because they recognize this for what it is. It's a statement about what Jesus is doing. He's doing a transformational, different work. And Judaism is going to have to stretch and expand and differentiate in order to understand and and embrace Jesus. And it's still true every day of every one of the believer's lives. Every day of my life, there is something challenging me, something challenging me, something challenging me. God continues to bring it before me and He continues to say, stretch in this way, go in that way, come on, expand. He's constantly implanting an effervescing, natural effervescent blood of Christ into me. And as he does, it transforms who I am. It transforms who you are. Everything that's new in a culture gets a challenge. Do you know that when, when the umbrella was first brought to England, if there was ever a place that needed umbrellas, it was England. When the umbrella was first brought to England, opened up and carried around, people made fun of the person carrying it. 
People attacked him and said he was crazy. What is he doing? Something bad's going to happen to him. Look at him. There is nothing more pervasive in English culture than the umbrella. But when it first came, they made fun of it. They challenged it. They said, this is a dumb idea. Change doesn't happen to us easily, but change in your spiritual life happens continually. So here's my question today. Have you stopped growing? Growth is uncomfortable. Have you stopped growing? Have you decided to put a patch on your spiritual life representing Jesus? You know, have you, have you, have you sort of thrown Jesus on there like a Harley badge? It's one of the things you just sew on the outside. There's pretty much no chance that that's going to be transformational. But if you allow them to fill you up, to place the Holy Spirit, the transformational blood of Christ, into who you are, it will make you a different person. Can't help it. It'll affect your job. And it should affect your job. It'll affect the way you parent. And it should affect the way you parent. It'll affect affect the places you go. And it should affect the places you go. Because what God is trying to do is extract you from what you have been and carry you forward to what you will be. He's accepted you when you recognize your spiritual poverty. But He doesn't leave you there. And He gives that spiritually broke, spiritually impoverished person who turns for home abundant life. So in the end, will we live like Jesus or won't we? Let's pray. Father God, the, the disciples of John, are asking a question that we're all asking. What is appropriate spiritual practice? What should we be doing as followers of Jesus? How do we give ourselves to you in a relationship? And it seems the answer is what the answer keeps on being. Repeat it again and again. Open yourself up to the indwelling spirit. Hang on to your hat because things are going to change. And so, Lord, we invite you to blow the doors off of our present to make room for the future. In Jesus' name, amen.
once was lost, I've walked away. The road was dark, I could not see. My hope was gone, the pain was real. But your mercy, you saw my steps, you felt my fear, you heard my cries, you caught my tears. Arms open wide, you ran to me with your mercy. Your mercy, your mercy. I stand before my King and bow my heart to sing. You saved me, you raised me, you died so I could no greater love than this, your mercy, your mercy. You give me life beyond the grave. Deepest shame is cast away. You sing a song that covers me. It's your mercy. stand before my King and bow my heart to sing. You saved me, you raised me, you died so I could live. No greater love than this, your mercy, your Your mercy, I 
stand before my King and bow my heart to sing. You saved me, you raised me, you died so I could live. No greater love than this, your mercy, your mercy. I stand before my King and bow my heart to sing. You saved me, you raised me, you died so I could live. No greater love than this, your mercy, your Church, will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, your mercy is sufficient. We thank you for gathering us here today. We thank you for having us here.